Welcome, everyone. This is Health or Consequences, a podcast of Mass Inc. and Commonwealth Magazine. My name is John McDonough from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Paul Haddis from the Lown Institute. We are delighted to welcome to our podcast this month, Ron Mariano, who is the Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives. First elected in 1991, uh, Speaker Mariano is a Democrat from Quincy representing the third Norfolk district. He's been the speaker since former Speaker Bob DeLeo's retirement in 2020. He's a graduate of Northeastern University and UMass Boston. And throughout his career in the legislature, he's had a deep, meaningful and impactful influence on healthcare policy in Massachusetts. So Mr. Speaker, we are thrilled and delighted and honored to have you join us here this morning. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for those kind words. And so we will start out. Paul Haddis will uh, we'll shoot the first question at you. Sure. Let me offer my words of welcome to you, Mr. Speaker, as well. Thanks, Paul. And John, and John I thought before we dive into any specific health care issues, we'd like to give you a chance to talk to our podcast listening audience to hear from you what you think a top priority might be for health care legislation during the remainder of this legislative term? Well, obviously, the, the, my big investment this, uh, this term has been in the determination of need process and trying to bring some uh, organization to that process, a process that was left untouched when we did uh, House Bill 224 back in 2012. Um, and, and then seeing it used uh, recently to, to do some expansion by MGB, uh, expansion that we felt, or I felt, along with a few other people, that would have an adverse impact, impact on total mar market expense. And so uh, we, we, filed, we put something together and filed it. Uh, luckily, the process uh, being used for this expansion was, was new enough that um, a lot of people jumped in and sort of slowed the whole process down and, and caused MGB to, to, uh, to withdraw their application for the three ambulatory surgery centers plus an on-site expansion. So it, we, we got the result we wanted, but there is still nothing in place that allows for an analysis of any expansion done through the DON process, you know, on, on market expenses. So, so what would be the most thing. important change, Mr. Speaker, you think should be done to the DON process? What are you I, I hoping to see to, happen? I, 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 yeah, John, I think, I think what, what we saw in it, um, and, and in all honesty, we didn't see it in 2012 because the expansion, we would just focus on hospital stuff. Ambulatory surgery centers weren't uh, prevalent. So we weren't concerned about it. And, and the, the issue for me is that when, when we put 2224 together, we looked at the set of conditions that were at the time and in the 10 years, and you follow this, you follow this longer than I have, uh, we're looking at a vastly different landscape with different, different cost factors, different drivers that 
we didn't anticipate in 2012. And so I think that we need this tool to analyze the financial impact on total medical expenses in our marketplace whenever we have an expansion of any consequence. I think the fact that the, the expansion at MGB would have gone forward without having either the two regulatory agencies, the AG or the HPC, look at the financial implications is wrong. I think they have to give us an analysis. We can't resolve, re rely on the result of, of an analysis hired by the proponent of the, of the project. So, so it's, I think it's why it's needed. And, and I think it was uh, something that we, we didn't pick up on in 2012. So thanks for that. Um, and since you raised the topic of the 2012 law, let's, let's go a little bit more deeply into that. This is the 10th anniversary of Don't what remind me, John. Don't <laughs> remind. <laughs> what was, what was clearly a landmark law in terms of uh, creating a national impact in terms of the cost conversation uh, yeah. that has resonated over the last decade. Uh, obviously, uh, former Rep. Steve Walsh was in a key role in that, but everyone knows that you played a major role as well. So looking back now 10 years, 10 years ago um, and up through today, the two major features of that law, the, the cost control benchmark, the yearly target for growth in healthcare spending, um, do you think it's succeeded? Do you think it's failed? Does it need any fixing? And <laughs> that's, then that's second related that's question, the, the, the board, the body in charge of it, the Mass Health Policy Commission has had a, uh, a very busy past decade. Are you pleased with the commission and how it's functioned and worked? And do you think there are any changes that need to be made to make it more effective? So the benchmark and the commission, how do you assess them today? And do you think there are any changes that are needed? Well, that, that's, a, that's a really good question. And if I take my partisan hat off and look at it objectively, I think that, and, and you, you crafted legislation, uh, so you know, as well as anyone, that situations change and the market changes. And if we look at the market in 2012 and what we were concerned with, I do think that the benchmark worked initially. I think it worked very well. And hospitals were able to hit their target date. But I do think the markets changed significantly. And I think that there are things that are cost factors now that we didn't even identify or didn't deal with. Uh, obviously, the improvements in some of the medicines coming out of mass bio with huge, huge costs, but, but uh, tremendous impact on, on helping the sick and, and uh, the ill. So, so I think we, we, we never factored those in. The change in the prescription drug process with PBMs now playing a big role in trying to figure out the relationship between PBMs, drug companies, and insurance companies. All of these things came into the marketplace after we had um, been up and running for a few years, and we never, ever changed the law to account for that. And I think that's a problem. So I think, I think you make a good point. At the end of 10 years, 
it is probably time to reassess what we're asking the HPC to do and how we're asking them to do it. And I do think it is time to maybe take a look at the commission also. I think you, you it's an issue that, that folks have been there for a long time. It's an unpaid, it's an unpaid position. Uh, a lot of volunteers, people, people uh, with all the great intentions, but may not have the time uh, necessary that, that we need to have them commit to, to resolve some of the issues we're going to be faced with. So I, I think you raise a good point, and, and it's something I've been thinking about for a while, too. And I think it would be time to maybe step in and, and reassess where we're going with this and what we would like to see it be become. Uh, we know what it is, but we want to we want to see if we need to update it and to keep pace with the changes in healthcare. Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, you know you um, mentioned when I first asked you top priority about the market expansion bill and in the particular concern that, as you say, was addressed by DPH was the was the proposal by Mass General Brigham, but when you created that twenty. 12 law, Master Brigham, then called Partners, was 18 years old. It's now 28 years old. And it, and we've had the B.I. Leahy merger, and now we even have the insurance merger, and we clearly have a consolidated healthcare market. A couple things. Is there anything we should be doing thinking about all of that consolidation? And in hindsight, do you think that um, MGB coming together as partners as it did in the mid 90s has been a good thing uh, or not for our state? Uh, that's that's a good question too. Uh, I, I think the the mergers and, and John was was in here when that was going on um, and was a leader in this. So uh, I, I think that some merger was necessary. Um, I believe that to be true. I do think that there were some hospitals whose financing was precarious. I, I grew up and lived in Quincy, represent Quincy. The Quincy Hospital was a community hospital that had, had some serious issues and was financially unstable. We tried for their survival to affiliate and combine because we felt it was the only way that they could exist. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't find a suitable partner. So it's hard for me to give a definitive yes or no on, on whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing. I think for some hospitals, it was necessary. And, and those of you who follow this, and I know you guys do, since I've been involved in this in 2006, I've been aware that the, the best low-cost quality care you can get is coming out of community hospitals. And we need to keep them viable. And we need to keep them viable any way that we can. So, so I'm not opposed to any merger, I'm, I'm, I'm opposed to mergers that are sort of uh, driven by increased market share and, and the opportunity to pick up more paid, uh, insured patients. And so so I, I think it's, it's, it's a hard question to, to give you a definitive yes or no on, but I do think it's, it's something that, a question that should be asked and should be asked constantly because as you look at every consolidation, you're having an impact on the total hospital rate that we pay in the Commonwealth. So 
It is a, it is a factor, and and there, there may be a sweet spot where we can we can make uh, we can have a a a active productive community hospital marketplace and some of the bigger uh, affiliated uh, hospitals. So so it, it's it's. We're sort of in a trial and error situation here, I guess, to, to answer your question directly, that we have to sort of play by feel. Um, there are some community hospitals that no one wants to affiliate with, you know, so. Do you think the state will have to intervene legislatively as you have sort of over the years, either to help those community hospitals or check some of the Financial well, look, look, we've already made we've made a huge financial commitment to some of these community hospitals already. Uh, they they got 250 million in ARPA money last time. We'll probably give them 250 more in the next round of ARPA money that we're going to give out over either this year or next. So uh, there is a huge financial component that the House is is uh, and the Senate is committed to, and I think we we understand that it's in our best interest to controlling costs that, that we, we keep these hospitals operational. And we will continue. It, and, and John knows this even better than I do. There is hope with a new waiver uh, from Washington that if, if the request that they've put in gets accepted, that it would help significantly help community hospitals. Okay. Um, so keeping on the track of kind of difficult topics. Um, <laughs> one, of those, one of those topics is primary care. And not just in Massachusetts, it's a problem around the whole nation. In fact, in many parts of the US, it's far worse than what we have right now. And uh, in Massachusetts, there's been a lot of difficulty and challenge and struggle. Uh, people feel like primary care is really facing desperate situations. Uh, we recently saw in the Massachusetts market, um, Atrius, formerly Harvard Vanguard, uh, bought out by Optum, a for-profit national uh, chain uh, that's uh, now got a firm foothold in Massachusetts. How do you feel about the state of primary care in Massachusetts? And is there any role for state government in trying to bolster it, improve it, uh, make it stronger so that it can, uh, so it can survive? Yeah, you know, th this is not a totally new problem, as you know. Um, in 2006, when we began to restructure the whole marketplace, one of the things we put in the bill was some incentives to get medical students out of the chase for specialties and into the primary care market. We had a number of incentives in there uh, with with scholarship money and... and uh, loan forgiveness uh, opportunities, and it never took off. Uh, we, we, we continued to lose folks who, who moved into specialties other than primary care, and we've continued to face that. And that's how you get into this whole thing with, with nurse practitioners and, and alternatives for, for some of the basic primary care procedures so that so you had an entry point into the system other than a primary care doc. And we've continued to, to explore those. But at the same time, we're, we're looking at using some of the federal money to, to, to sort of help reestablish 
the the primary care market in in the current house budget there's an opportunity to sort of partner with uh, UMass Amherst on the Mount Ida campus uh, as a healthcare center, an educational center, where we could begin to because because there are dorms there, you can you can certainly use the the local hospitals as as teaching laboratories for for students to do to do sort of like co-op work uh, like like they do at Northeastern. That's uh, that's Representative Lowndes Initiative, is yes, that right? Yes, uh -huh. yes. Uh, and and the primary focus behind that is primary care, uh, mm -hmm. and that's why we we sort of thought that we have that facility. Muas owns it. They have a a a small program, and we're looking at whether or not it, it's it's going to be worth it to to put some money into it and start to start to address not just the primary care. Uh, shortage, but a nurse shortage that is becoming apparent that we uh, has got us very concerned. On the on the revenue side, you know, the governor for a couple of years now, pre-COVID, proposed redistributing some dollars both towards primary care and behavioral health. What's your thoughts about that concept as a way to help primary care a bit too? Well, I I think like the governor has some good ideas. The the interest for me has been. What happens if you don't hit those numbers, and what do you what do you do to the hospitals that, that, that didn't hit those numbers, and the docs didn't hit the numbers? And there was never any answers for any of that. Um, but but I think inherently it makes sense to sort of you know let's focus our attention on primary care because we all know that it's uh, it determines uh, how fast you get treatment from some of the real. Um, Contagious diseases or debilitating diseases that that need treatment. So there's a lot of benefits to that yearly physical. It's not a myth. It's not a joke. It's 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 a serious it's a serious uh, business, and and we support it. And we're ready to make commitments to see if we can jumpstart an awareness that it is important to get in and see your primary care doc. And that the money spent on primary care is well spent. Um, you must um, you must face this a lot, um, Mr. Speaker. But the, the the tension between what can the state do itself, besides nibble around the edges, versus getting the federal government to come in, because these are clearly national issues that transcend Massachusetts. Yeah. And uh, how do you how do you how do you view that? And you, is there a sense of sort of why do we even try in Massachusetts when these are really national problems? Well, you know, you know feel like we got to go at it. Yeah, it, no, you're right. It is frustrating, but but at some point you realize that you can only you can only have an impact in your own little world, and that we recognize that, and that's why I've been reluctantly increasing the scope of practice for some of the nursing certifications. But, but I, I do think that it is a national issue and it is frustrating when we get money and we're told that some of it can go here, but a lot of it can. Uh, so we continue to sort of, luckily, we, we are doing all right financially right now and we have some surplus that we can invest. And I think it's well worth investing in the, the issues that we just talked about, the training of more primary care docs, the 
training of more nurses and better trained nurses. Uh, someone said to me as I was pitching a was pitching the Mount Ida thing, and they said the hardest thing about training nurses is finding nurses to train nurses. And that's a great point because you need you need a master's degree to, to, to teach. And right now what they're paying master's degree nurses, we we can't we can't afford that, you know. And it, so we're looking at ways to fund some of this stuff, at least in the short term, with the hope that we can at least bring the numbers up to a little bit uh, to even it and and then uh, go from there. But but you're right, it is a frustrating problem. But the, the alternative is to do nothing, John, and that's that's not what we're going to do. So we'll try. Mr. Speaker, let me talk about another frustrating problem, both nationally and our state, and only gotten worse during COVID, which is you know mental health challenges for population, ch yeah. children, adults, and others. I know you were speaking with the business community recently and mentioned that the House is working on its own version of a behavioral health bill, that the Senate passed something last fall. Uh, anything you can tell us about that and your priorities for uh, what the House might do? Yes. Um, you know, you, you raise the issue of COVID, and uh, obviously, I think that drives a lot of the mental uh, health resurgence we see in, in our population today. And the Senate went first and dealt with a lot of the adult mental health issues, and it became obvious to me that I didn't want to debate priorities with the, with the House, I mean with the Senate, that I was really interested in, in uh, probably 5 through 18. Um, the kids who are impacted by the COVID in the year, at least a year off in isolation, a year off from school in isolation, missing out on that year of growth and interaction with peers and whatever changes you go through at the different ages that you're at. And it's resulted in a lot of problems as kids come back to school. <clears throat> Certain adjustments that uh, challenges that, that have gone well, some that haven't gone well. The increase in suicide rates for teens. All these things have me just scratching my head as to what can we do? So we decided to work in con to complement what the Senate was doing rather than present alternative proposals. So we're going to focus on a little bit of a different age group. There'll be some overlap, but most of the things that we're talking about will, will affect a different population. But the one issue that remains the same is the lack of bed space and how you deal with that. And I think we, we both will will come together to, to work on how we resolve that because that's the next biggest issue for us in mental health. Hey, um, Mr. Speaker, last issue, maybe it's a big question, it's two parts. Um, Governor Charlie Baker, um, coming to the end, and you've obviously worked as closely with him as anyone on Beacon Hill. Um, looking at COVID over the past two and a half years, what do you think the governor did right about COVID and what might he have done better? And then a related question, if you have any advice at this point for his successor, whomever he or she may be, um, what, what might the next governor try to do uh, to continue what Governor Baker has done well? And what might the next governor 
try to do differently, do you think, that might, uh, might be more advantageous for the state? So COVID and, uh, and generally in terms of uh, reflecting on uh, Charlie Baker's eight years in the governor's office. Wow, okay, it's uh, a good question. The, the one thing that, that he did that, that bothered me a little bit was the, the, the lack of a, a clear vaccination strategy and getting, getting, up, getting letting mixed messages get sent out. Um, so there was always a bit of uncertainty as to when vaccines were going to be available, how to get it, where it was going to be, what you needed to have. And I think it, it led to some confusion and some, some frustration that we felt as legislators from our constituents. You know, uh, if you've ever had to talk to someone who's spent four hours trying to get on a website to find a vaccination site or a vaccine, a, a vaccine you, you know what frustration is. So there were those issues that were at the beginning, but then they seemed to, they seemed to rally around the, the messaging and get consistently better at being on TV with the message, with the numbers, uh, trying to help people understand where we were in this whole pandemic, how it was, how we were progressing through it. So I thought they did a good job on the education stuff, but none of us have been through a pandemic before. So we were a sort of a trial and error situation that we were all in. And it was very frustrating. And it wasn't just Charlie, the, you know, the, the, the inconsistency of the messaging was probably one of the most difficult things to deal with. Should you wear a mask or you don't have to wear a mask? The mask doesn't work. The mask does work. You know, where were we as a, as a state and as a country on some of these issues was never made with definitive clarity. And, and that was a problem. It was a problem for us that were trying to implement policies because you come up with a policy and then two days later you'd be reading the Globe and you find out there's a group of doctors that said you're nuts that the policy just won't work. So there's all those, those issues that, and, and whomever is gonna guide us through the next one. The, the lesson here is consistency of message. Speak with some clarity and understanding of the facts so that there is no, uh, so, so, that, so that it's difficult for outsiders to criticize and create alternative facts. I, I look at poor Dr. Fauci. You know, the guy was reading from Bill of the Post and it wasn't always his fault. You know, the CDC would change a message or there'd be a competitive message from another group. And he was left always trying to, trying to find the, uh, the, the right answer. So it, that to me was the biggest frustration of this whole process. And, and, and I'm not convinced we're out of it yet anyway. So I think you guys know better than I, but, but the messaging still is, is a bit inconsistent. So, although it's better than it was. So. Well, Speaker Mariano, I know you and your colleagues are always struggling for the, for the right and good answers on behalf of us all. But I think on behalf of John and I, I appreciate your coming on and chatting with us about healthcare policy issues today. And again, th thank you so much for doing so.
I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Great to see you, Mr. Speaker. Keep up your great work. Good to see you. Thank you so much. And one of the benefits, and I know this is important to you, I think one of the benefits of the pandemic and the APA money is we looked at our public health uh, situation in the Commonwealth, and we are severely undermanned and understaffed. And so uh, that's another thing we're going to work on. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Good luck. Have a great summer. uh, Thanks for your time so much for every on behalf of everybody listening. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for us at uh, Health or Consequences. And uh, thanks to my colleague, Paul Hattis. And we'll be back next month with another edition. Thank you all. Mm -hmm.